Hi everyone, I'm Jason Scorse and welcome to another episode of Dispatch from the Zombie Apocalypse. I hope everybody is doing great. For this episode, I'm going to play the audio of a recent discussion I had with David Roberts of Vox. It was on the politics and policy of the Green New Deal. We covered a lot of ground, so it's a rather long conversation, but I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, David is just an incredibly astute journalist and political observer, and he's got a lot of wisdom to share. Afterwards, I'll come back with some real quick antidotes, and then we'll wrap it up. So with that, everybody, I bring you my conversation with David Roberts, uh, taped on May 2nd of this year. I just want to set this up by saying that, you know, there's, it's, there's a lot of depressing stuff going on at the federal level if you are alive and not living in a cave. And um, I, I, we'll, we'll get into the usual suspects and all the enemies of progress uh, later on in the discussion because they're there. They're angry, they're unified, and they have a lot of disproportionate power in our system. But, but before we get to them, I think it's, it's refreshing for a moment for those of us who actually do care about the future and for, for which climate change is a real thing and science and facts matter to take a moment to reflect that there's, there's some really amazing stuff going on. And the Green New Deal is a serious framework it's it's not a actual detailed piece of legislation we'll get to that in a moment but it's it's kind of amazing that for the first time in a long time the climate movement the the climate hawks the the, the progressive movement has somebody and some vision and framework that's actually up to the scale of the problem for the first time and i think that's something that's great to, to celebrate i want to give a big props to you know the sunrise movement the justice democrats 350.org the New Consensus Project, uh, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Markey, who have really put this on the agenda, and you know, and a lot of the Democratic leaders who are really at the forefront and have endorsed this. Um, so so to, to kind of set the table here, because David's done a lot of reporting on this, I'd like, David, if you could just tell us, you know, what is the Green New Deal? Give us it, and, and who, you know... Tell us what they're trying to accomplish with this. Give us the big, the big picture. Sure, sure. Uh, I think the, the right way to understand it is to kind of start, start with the goal and work backwards. So the, this IPCC report came out. And, and basically, the IPCC says that in order to avoid more than 1.5 degrees Celsius uh, temperature rise. Uh, the the glow the world has to decarbonize entirely, 100 percent by 2050. And if we want to possibly be on a trajectory in that direction, we need to cut emissions globally in half by 2030. So get on the trajectory in 2030, finish by 2050. So um, so how do you and and Furthermore, that's globally, so uh, sort of fairness and equity 
suggest that uh, developing countries, poorer countries, who are working to bring their citizens up to our our level of affluence or our, our sort of modern level of of living, um, deserve more room, <laughs> more more carbon emissions. Than, than the developed world does, because we already did our developing and we burned all the fossil fuels to do it. And most of the historic uh, uh, greenhouse gases are, are traceable to, to us. So uh, that means that if the globe needs to get halfway there by 2030 and completely there by 2050, the U.S. probably, morally speaking, should go faster than that. The U.S. and the EU and developed countries. How much faster is, is, is something we can discuss later. So, so the question is, all right, say the U.S. wanted to do that. Um, uh, work backwards from there. Well, you need to completely decarbonize the electricity sector. You need to completely decarbonize the transportation sector. And we, we say decarbonize. I really think a lot of the discussion about climate change for a long time has been about reducing emissions, right? Which can mean almost anything, <laughs> right? Like the fact that I walked here from my hotel rather than getting a lift. Yeah, I reduced emissions, but but trivially. So what, right? So <clears throat> so that is sort of a, a metric of success that's so fuzzy that anyone can <clears throat> achieve it. So, But when we talk about zero, right, it's very clarifying. It's very, um, there's a, a real uh, a clarity to that number. That means that between now and 2050, literally anything that produces greenhouse gases has got to go has got to either be substituted with something else or it's got to go entirely. So transportation, uh, industry, flying, you know, trains, on and on. So what would it mean to decarbonize all those sectors, even 50% by 2030 in the next 10 years? Well, that would be a massive, massive, massive undertaking. It's going to, um, the market is not going to do that on its own. It's going to require serious, substantial, sustained government intervention and government uh, 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 investment. Uh, two, we know that driving change that substantial that quickly is going to be incredibly disruptive. It's going to, there's no, there's no talking around it. Like we're way past the point where we can solve this problem in a sort of incremental behind the scenes way. Like if we could go back to 1990, fine, pass your small, slowly escalating carbon tax, right? It just works away in the background. Nobody much notices it. That's fine. And then we're in a way better place today. But we didn't do that. So, so only speed is, <laughs> is the only answer now. And speed means disruption. That means um, that, that there will be whole industries that are going to basically be phased out. There are going to be whole regions of the country that are implicated with those industries and, and depend on those industries that are going to have their economic uh, uh, base phased out. There are going to be whole new industries created, whole new centers of, of research and, and manufacturing. It's just going to be incredibly disruptive. So um, say you're pitching this to the American people, right? We've got to do this. Morally speaking, we've got to do this. And it's going to be incredibly disruptive. And let's go launch into that with our with our crappy healthcare system that's tied. Let's let's create and destroy 
hundreds of thousands of jobs in an economy where your healthcare is tied to your employment, where you're one health problem away from ruin, where you can get booted out of your home for missing a few mortgage payments to these creepy mortgage, you know, uh, on and on and on. Um, we have in this system, we have in this economy, and we've we've crafted an economy where the natural state of the American worker is precarity, is they are constantly in a precarious position. We've offloaded more and more structural risk onto individuals to, for, to, to, to save for retirement, to manage their health care, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So to say to, this, to the working class in a country with massive and growing income inequality, in a country where workers are more and more face more and more uh, precarious circumstances every day. Hey, let's do this giant disruptive thing. They're probably not gonna be super psyched for that. <laughs> so um, if you want to do that, you also have to tell the American people while we do it, we're going to take care of each other. We're going to lift each other up through this. We're going to guarantee that you have health care. We're going to guarantee that you can find work. We're going to guarantee that you can find a job that if you work it, will pay you enough to raise a family. We're going to uh, restore an economy in which uh, um, working people have some economic security. And we're going to do this by spurring this massive wave of economic development and manufacturing and, and uh, research and innovation, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we're gonna, and we're going to create jobs programs. We're going to clean up the water. We're going to plant trees. We're all going to do this together. And we're going to make sure you're okay. We're going to make sure you're better off after this than you were before. That's the logic of the Green New Deal. That's the, the strategic whatever, logic. And that's, um, you know, what uh, AOC ran on. Uh, it's what all these sort of young uh, uh, lefty Democrats ran on. And so they introduced this um, resolution to Congress a few months ago, a Green New Deal resolution, which was um, not policy. It's not meant to be policy yet. Um, they are aware that no policy is going to pass in the next two years while Republicans control uh, uh, Congress. Um, so th this is all about creating an agenda for Democrats to run on in 2020. This is all about um, the, the, the uh, hoped-for time <laughs> among activists where Democrats retake control, have the presidency, and both houses of Congress maybe kill the filibuster. We can talk about that later, but maybe actually for once have a chance to, to, to do something and spend the next two years um, pitching this, working, you know, getting Democrats on board with it and getting the public excited about it. That's, that was, so the Green New Deal resolution that was released in Congress by AOC and, and Markey is just a set of goals, um, decarbonize the whole economy, uh, protect people's jobs, and healthcare, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's meant to be a framework or a set of principles and goals that legislation will be made within that framework. And so there's a lot of work going on among a lot of people now trying to sort of put flesh on the bones to really hammer out policies. 
um, et cetera, et cetera. But, but at least in, in big conceptual terms, that's the point of the Green New Deal, which seemed to sail over the heads of 98% of the American uh, media and public. So, <laughs> so I don't know how well it's doing, but that was, that was what they were after. Yeah. And so thanks for that. I think it's, it's really important to frame it like this, because remember, all environmental legislation in the United States, all big kind of policy is always met by the right as this is going to kill jobs, it's going to raise prices. Grover Norquist from, you know, the tax reform, who's behind every tax cut, is going to say this is just another tax on America. And so what this was was an attempt to say we're not, if that's not the easy foil anymore, right, which is we're going to have the jobs guarantee, we're going to have the health care, we're going to have the public works, so you can't come back right away. Now, of course, Fox News and all the usual suspects are already doing that, right? They're never going to take this on good faith then. So the machine is, are, are, is kind of in gear. To, you know, it's the apocalypse. It's this huge tax. But they've in some ways insulated themselves if they can at least, if people can judge the Green New Deal on its own terms because it is this. And so let's talk a little bit about this. You know, what do you think about this strategy? What do you think about the thought that's been put on this to, to insulate the left from this attack, that it's an attack on workers? Do you think the components are the right components? Do you think they're framing it in the right way? And do you think if it gets a fair hearing that it will really be able to, to stand on its own? That is so complicated. <laughs> I mean, I mean, there's the, there's the GND and its effects and public opinion about it and, and legislators' opinion about it. And then there's just sort of the larger political uh, whatever the hell's going on, whatever you call it that's going on. And, and it's, you know, uh, uh, I've, been, I've, I've, I've been trained <laughs> by repeated failure not to make predictions about uh, U.S. politics anymore after writing an article in, in 2015 with the headline, Donald Trump will never be president. <laughs> And my colleague said, are you sure you want to, don't you want to put a maybe? I was like, no, <laughs> you guys are crazy. I have one up on you because I actually knew he was going to win the primary, made a lot of money on that. And I was always saying he could win. So I, I, did, I was a little bit more realistic than you. <laughs> uh, my, my cynicism has trailed along behind events over, <laughs> over and over and over again as fast as I try to push it ahead. But, but so, I mean, I think if you... To put it in, to put it in sort of the, the most grimly realistic terms possible, I think if you're just like a betting, just if you're just betting on events, you know, at, 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 at an at a Las Vegas track or something, the the right bet to make is continued dysfunction and gridlock and and inaction. Like that's that's all the structural forces are yielding that. So so. Um, you know, so so I was I was talking the other day with uh, uh, with uh, a guy named Jerry Taylor at the Niskanen Center, and what they're trying to do is sort of the opposite of what the G and D people are trying to do. They're trying to sort of recreate a modern republicanism, recreate a, a, a moderate conservatism, and start um, a climate policy from the center and work out from there. And 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 what the Green New Deal people are trying to do is start from the left. Unite the left, unite uh, a lot of these sort of apathetic, disengaged populations that don't see anything for themselves in politics, bring them in and overwhelm the right, right? Those are the two different strategies. Work from the center out or overwhelm from one side. And as Jerry and I sort of concluded, 
both those are super long shots. Like both those are, you know, both those are on a purely odds basis unlikely to succeed for all the reasons that we're all familiar with now. But but basically, like he thinks he thinks the G and D strategy has a zero percent chance, and his has like a one percent chance. And I sort of think the other way around. Like I I don't think there's any center anymore. I think the center's totally dead. And so and so this sort of like hail mary come from the left thing is the only real. It's all. Like it's all there is. It's all I see left to do because the the the, the sort of structural status quo is a fifty fifty nation in a system of government that is riddled by uh, 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 veto points, where it's just very 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 easy for a minority to block action. It's just super super easy to stop things from happening. And of course, you know, as as we all know, rural and 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 suburban white guys and their wives are are wildly overrepresented in the federal government, in the Senate, uh, through gerrymandering, through uh, uh, on and on and on. So there's all these. So even we saw this during during Obama. I mean, we saw it during Obama. Here we are, like we're in the midst of a massive re- recession a very visible undeniable crisis and he could he could barely get a a handful of republicans to cooperate on a fiscal stimulus to prevent the country from literally sinking into a depression like you can't get a clear cut case of sort of need or public spirit or the call for public spirit than that and that barely worked and they've only moved farther right since then so so the way I see it, the only hope of, of anything happening is something big that breaks the status quo somehow. So that's got to be either a public, uh, you know, and, and the only real force I see that the left, the only power that the left has access to, um, I mean, the right's always going to have more money. Their billionaires are way more focused <laughs> and, and effective than the left's billionaires. The left's billionaires are scattered and flaky and they love social policy, but they don't love leftist economic policy because they're rich people. So we can't, like, we can't depend on our rich people and we can't depend on the structures of U.S. government. So what's left is just people. It's people power. That's the only, that's the only source that the left has access to that might has any hope of working. So a, 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 a people movement that overwhelms uh, 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 Congress, on the one hand, um, kill the filibuster. If the filibuster stays in place, and I'm saying it here, I've said it a dozen times, I'll say it here again. If this filibuster stays in place, President whoever, whoever, is not going to pass anything. Anything. Not big things, not small things, no things. And how do I know this? Because Mitch McConnell told us <laughs> he said so in 2009 and has and has followed through on that with remarkable consistency it's a lesson that people refuse to learn but like he's probably going to keep doing that so it, the filibuster's got to go um you could make dc and puerto rico into states which would give each of them two senators more probably pretty reliably democratic senators uh you can pack the courts 
You can reform gerrymandering. You can do voting reform, automatic voter registration, vote by mail. There's like a million, a million and one things that need to happen to break the structural <clears throat> gridlock that we have now. And, and, and to getting any of those big things to happen, you need to get the public fired up about them because you're not going to get lobbyists fired up about them or rich people or, or the sort of insiders like outside in people powered force is the only real thing I see having any plausible chance of shaking things loose. And it's probably a low chance, but it's, but it's better than a no chance is the best I could well, I, I, I was coming into this so positive, and you're already you're already getting us on the on, on, on the negative within the first ten minutes. But I'm going to bring it back to the positive. Uh, and also, I just want to be clear here: we're going to have a conversation for about maybe forty five to sixty minutes. We we'll have a series of questions about the Green New Deal, and then we're going to take questions from the audience. The way it's going to go is the cards again. People are going to come around and collect them at about maybe seven ten. Uh, we figure, and then we'll and we'll get a representative sample from you all. So, so let's come back to the positive here on the, the technical feasibility stuff, and let's talk about community power since, since one of our sponsors is our, our great Monterey Bay Community Power Group. So the first thing is more coal plants have closed down in the first two years of Trump than in all eight years of Obama. So the whole bring Trump coal back and all this nonsense, right, we know that's not happening. A lot of states are putting up for bid at utility scale. They're saying, everybody bid, we want to do a couple new power plants, and solar plus storage, wind is actually coming in without subsidies, cheaper than coal, cheaper than natural gas right now today. So the economic forces are incredibly uh, going forward. There's seven states now, again, that have these community power and community choice agreements. So, so I guess, do you think the economics plus the leftward push of the Democratic Party plus the vision of these student groups, Sunrise, I mean, do you think that the, the forces for this grassroots movement are, are, are here and maybe more powerful than you're giving them credit. Yeah. I mean, the, the big, the big story of American politics, which is, which is reflected in every little sub story of American politics is, a, it is a minority that's been in power for a long time, clinging to the power as, as long as they can and, and freaking out about losing it and, and viewing the loss of privilege, as people do, as as an insult, as 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 victimization. Like so, so it's the same here as everywhere. It's, the forces that you're discussing are going to win in the end. <laughs> climate change, like young people are on board. Like climate change is not going away. Modernity is not going to stop in reverse, no matter what Trump wants. Like like there's no there's no question who's got the arc of history on their side, right? It's all comes down to speed. It's all about speed, right? Because we're in an extremely tightly constrained situation here. So yeah, I think there's there's tons of power on our side. And there's tons of stuff happening on the state level. I don't know if you guys saw my home state of Washington just passed a law going to 100% clean electricity by 2045. I think New Mexico... <laughs> I didn't do it, but thank you. Um, New Mexico has one now. California has one now. Uh, is it Maryland? I'm starting to lose track. Like L.A., Nevada, just passed. Nevada, um, Los Angeles, Chicago, uh, New York City, New York, the state of New York. I can't keep track anymore. So like, yeah, things are definitely happening. But, but um, so politically, 
And that's true on, on, on a lot of things, right? The, the, the state of frozen politics in D.C. is not reflective of what's happening. And eventually that tidal pull will, you know, the federal government will be the caboose. It'll be the last thing to move. But eventually it'll get pulled along. So politically, I think um, uh, absolutely the will is there and it's only going to grow and is only like it just keeps getting, you know, like even now I feel like I'm taking things for granted that like a year ago I would have viewed as insane, like uh, having all these people in the streets, having, you know, uh, pr- prospective Democratic presidential candidates release plans to 100 percent decarbonize the U.S. economy by 2050. That's just ludicrous. Like that would have been ludicrous five minutes ago and now we're like that's not enough like the, the activists are like that's not enough <laughs> so so politics are moving uh, quickly absolutely um the technical feasibility is a whole is a whole different question and an interesting question um we have been misled or not misled i think we've been sort of dazzled a little bit by how quickly electricity is moving like electricity is 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 getting cleaner and furthermore we're better at, we have a better and better handle on how to do the rest of electricity so so it's not to say it's going to be easy to get to 100% clean electricity anywhere but but we see the path and we're moving faster and faster down it and it's giving us all this sort of giddy sense of momentum but looming in the background are these other sectors that have gotten almost no attention and are barely even started decarbonizing transportation being the big one, the sort of next obvious one on the menu. Like we sort of have a sense how to decarbonize that, but then beyond that, uh, well, transportation, at least in terms of like passenger vehicles, right? But there's heavy trucking, there's, you know, all sorts of giant industrial machines. There's flying always looming in the background flying. We don't know how to solve that. We don't know what to do about that. And then there's industry, you know, cement and steel, coking, all these high, high temperature applications, um, uh, uh, materials that, that petroleum and, and fossil fuels are used for. Just there's all these bits of the economy that aren't that sexy and that we don't talk about that much and that haven't really even barely begun decarbonizing. We really don't know, we don't have nearly as good a sense of how to get through them as we do electricity. So... You know, but how you interpret that, you know, like the activists behind the Green New Deal are saying, yes, that's right. Let's set up um, research hubs, industry specific research hubs. Let's like bring in universities. Let's double our research, triple our research budget and like get serious about R&D and get serious about figuring these things out on a practical level. And let's bring the weight and power and money of the federal government to bear on accelerating all that process. So in a sense, it's like scary because you're setting out for a destination that you really don't know, honestly, how you're going to get to. Uh, But also like kind of cool and kind of fun. Like if we could just get everybody on board, it's kind of an adventure, right? Like let's figure out how to save the world together. Like let's do something big together. Let's figure stuff out. And like, you know, we just have become so frozen and pinched in our political imaginations because of the crap show. Like if we could step back a little bit and get a clearer view, this is like a fantastic national mission. That's going to like renew our economy. It's going to give us a sense of purpose. It's going to, it's going to help our international reputation to once 
not be the turd in the punch bowl internationally. So anyway, I think um, technically we don't know how to get there, but we know how to learn how to get there. Let's put it that way. So, so, you know, what I like about the Green New Deal is it frames itself as a mobilization, right? And clearly using the New Deal, most Americans know what the New Deal is. And then putting green on it, green has positive connotations. You know, again, you know, Trump will get out there saying he loves clean air and clean water. Republicans haven't come out for pollution just yet, right? They're still faking it. They still say they like clean water and clean air. Uh, and so... It's, it's greening the earth. That's right. That's right. 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 Yeah, that, that, that is true. So so the point being is I think the framing seems good. I think maybe what's missing from it, and, and this is a question for you, is is a little kind of nationalism or a little jingoism with it, which is, you know, a kind of an America number one, America first. The, you know, we had to be first to the move. We had to beat the Russians. Right. And the, now you know, the Chinese are really starting to be the leaders in, in clean tech. They're putting tons of money into AI and robotics. So maybe maybe it's Green New Deal plus a little jingoism, a little nationalism. We've got to be in front. I don't know. I guess the point being is where – how do you – do you see something in terms of the selling of this that's missing or a, or a way forward for all of us out here to think about how to frame this that, that might capture more of the public imagination? Yeah, that's uh, that's a great question. It's it's really illustrative of 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 the left and some of the left's dysfunctions. Like the, I'll say that the material for that kind of case is in the Green New Deal. Like the, the the Green New Deal is specifically says over and over again the resolution we're going to um, revitalize and restore and pay attention to all these vulnerable and frontline communities, which they which they you know which they mean by the usual sort of uh, you know, minorities and, and indigenous and all these these sort of usual groups that the left pays attention to, but also coal communities and, and oil communities on in the Gulf Coast and all these fossil fuel communities and all these sort of poor, you know, the country's full of poor, the poor rural uh, 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 communities who need work and who need purpose and who need something to do. So, so and um, absolutely, like, the electric car, the EV market, just for just to take an example, is, is right on the brink of just massive, massive, rapid expansion, and and um, you know, like American car companies are are uh, notoriously clueless, and they sort of like halfway see it coming, but halfway don't, and so this is about like having the government kick their butt and get them into gear and get them moving so we capture that market. Like there's plenty of that. If you're, you know, speaking to an audience to whom that kind of rhetoric resonates, there's plenty of material for, yeah, we want to, we don't want to let China eat our lunch on all this stuff. We don't want to like uh, uh, lose all the biggest markets of the coming century, but it's sort of like lefty activists by nature are not... Don't re that that kind of stuff just doesn't really sound authentic when 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 young lefty activists try to say it they don't they don't like they they can they can sing the words but they don't quite know the tune so and and, and of course then you have the sort of perpetually counterproductive democratic wonk community whose main critique of the Green New Deal is that it doesn't 
is that it focuses too much on America and doesn't focus enough on these other countries that need to decarbonize more and really ought to have included a giant multi-billion dollar fund whereby America funnels money to these other countries so that they can decarbonize. I was like, yeah, you guys are, are as politically astute as ever, I see. Uh, so, so there's no one on the left who will sort of pick up that ball and run with it. But sure, like if it's there for the, it's there for the taking. So let's let's maybe go back more into the the policy stuff. We have a policy audience where, where we we can get into the the weeds here. Maybe some some of your you've written a lot about kind of the challenges of utility scale transformation. Then kind of a lot of people, obviously in California now, every individual home is going to be required to have a solar panel. Again, we have our Monterey Bay community power here. Do you, can you talk talk us through a little bit about some of the issues playing on again with kind of decentralization versus big kind of economies of scale, local control versus big utilities? Kind of tell us the landscape a little of that and how it plays into the Green New Deal. Yeah, I I don't. Um, I guess I should say what uh, pundits are not ever supposed to say, which is I don't know. <laughs> I mean, there are two things going on right now. There is a massive and and just endlessly fascinating evolution happening in the electricity industry right now. The grid is uh, the grid is decentralizing. There's all these distributed energy technologies just profusing everywhere, different kinds, and they're starting to like work together more intelligently through AI and machine learning. And there's all these possibilities opening up on the grid edge that didn't exist before. And so you have kind of like these social forces uh, that are starting to clash now, like utilities are trying to figure out sort of on the fly how to accommodate this stuff. And the utility business model, the only way utilities make money for shareholders is by investing in giant steel in the ground, as they say, giant building, you know, they build things, they invest in things, and they get guaranteed rates of return on that. That's basically the utility model almost everywhere in America. But that, of course, like, creates a permanent incentive to build, build, build. And it creates a disincentive to let your customers use less through efficiency or to generate their own energy through distributed. So there's this whole clash now of how to either work around utilities which is what this sort of CCA thing in California is doing is like, you guys won't do it. Fine. We're just going to like break off and make our own deal and do it ourselves. Um, versus uh, utility reform in, in Washington's bill that just passed the Washington state bill. Um, um, the, the, the coolest best part of that bill was not the 100% electricity part. It's actually utility reform. It reforms the utility business model, shifting over to what's called a performance based metrics so utilities, instead of making money by just build, 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 they can now make money by achieving performance targets. So like efficiency or, or distributed energy or, you know, it's yet to be sort of determined by the Washington UTC exactly what those performance standards will be. So all of that's going on. And then all of this <laughs> political stuff is going on. And there's, and there's a lot of like currents there that I feel like are interacting in weird and, and unpredictable ways. And I don't know exactly how it will play out. Like the political valence of distributed energy is interesting. It's, it's appealing to conservatives in a way that a lot of other sort of lefty <laughs> energy stuff isn't. 
you know, which which is potentially a wedge in 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 red states. Like you have homeowners in open fights with utilities in red states already, and you have sort of movements backing uh, uh, rooftop solar in in red states. Now it's almost almost a real political force. So how all that's going to come together, I have no idea. But I will say, like, as someone who has, A, followed the electricity industry for a long time and, B, followed politics, national politics for a long time, I have never seen either system so utterly unsettled and so fluid and so just everything's up for grabs right now. Like, everything that used to seem permanent and fixed is up for grabs now. So it's like, it's an interesting time to, is that the, is that the Chinese phrase? Interesting, yeah. interesting days. We're living in interesting days. Yeah, I think it's woe to those who are living in interesting <laughs> days. Um, I'm trying so, to be positive. Yeah. Um, well, let, let's, let's switch topics a little here. Uh, you did an interview with Rihanna Gunn-Wright, who's at the new consensus, uh, who's really one of the big architects now trying to take the framework for the green new deal and put it into real legislation. I think that was on the Ezra, Ezra Klein podcast. I really recommend people you know download that, take a listen here. But one of the things that she pointed out was the politically the lesson here, you know, the Green New Deal is very ambitious, is to to give people things that are going to be very hard to take away from them, right? So for example, you know, Obamacare never hit fifty percent approval until Trump came into office. And now it's at like sixty-five, seventy percent, because now that they see a force who wants to take things away, all of a sudden those things that were, you know, evil Obamacare are actually pretty nice. Like and do, do you remember when Nancy Pelosi was caught on tape saying, once they know what's in it, they'll once we pass it and they know what's in it, they'll like it. And she got pilloried for that, right. pilloried endlessly, right. and she was one hundred percent correct. Yeah. And I and I and, and let's Cheers to Nancy Pelosi. She is she's my favorite, and she has the been the most effective on the left for 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 many decades. Uh, but but in that, so so let's talk about what what that might look like. What are type of things? And again, conservatives will fight them because they know once they pass, they're going to be impossible to take away. But what are those smaller incremental pieces of the Green New Deal? Do you think? that might we might be able to get through that then will be very hard to reverse and then therefore the power might accumulate and we might get that kind of momentum for this this large scale effort right uh that is a super great question i wish i had a better answer i wish collectively we had a better answer to that so so i mean i think one of the things you really have to take seriously in a divided nation in a 50-50 nation in in a nation with two political parties and a first-past-the-post uh, uh, voting system where things are inevitably going to be binary and inevitably going to be fairly close, closely divided, is you see these flailing back and forths in policy which are, which are unhealthy <laughs> for a democracy and unhealthy in a number of ways. And, so, um, and you see now Trump stomping through Obama's legacy, getting rid of every piece of it that he can. And so we're getting kind of a, like a, a real-time experiment. <laughs> what, what can last under that assault? And it's, you know, there's good news and bad news. Like there's all these headlines about how he's reversed all of Obama's uh, uh, regulations, but he hasn't really. What he did is like somebody gave him a piece of paper and a crayon and he signed his name to get rid of the regulation, but that's not how regulations come and go. Like there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, to, to, to you have to replace them with something else and you have to and like the EPA has to justify 
why it did what it did to courts. Like they can't, it's, they can't just do whatever they want. So most of the regulations he's trying to kill, he's tried to kill are not dead. They're in some, and, and he's, and he's lost in court over and over again. So, so, um, you know, there's some, there's some regulatory stuff, but just like the general question of how do you pass policy that is durable? Sort of the, what are the desiderata of policy, right? Like it's efficient, it's, it's economic, et cetera, et cetera. We have to add durability to that. And I think take durability, even sacrifice some of those other things, right, in the name of durability, because we're sort of in an era where it is all but certain that sometime in the next 10 years after you do whatever you do, that the other guys are going to be in charge and trying to kill it. So, um, so I mean, there's a few obvious things like, Programs that give people tangible, visible benefits are hard to unwind. Um, policies that create um, business contracts between business entities um, are difficult to unwind, right? Like if you get it implicated, if you get contractual law implicated, that was always one of the original supposed to be one of the original benefits of cap and trade back when it was like first being thought about back in the 1990s is you pass it and you have these these um, contracts between businesses selling allowances and they plan around them and they invest around them and, and you know what I mean so you like they get incorporated into business life and then if you come in and say I'm just going to yank this out all of a sudden it's got roots everywhere and you've got a bunch of pissed off businesses so that's the kind of thinking um, um that that is uh, that that's behind the Green New Deal. Also, is let's invest very publicly and visible, visibly in communities. Let's invest in things where you can put a sign on the side of the highway that says, "Thank you, <laughs> federal government, for this," or right or whatever. Or, you know what I mean? And so and so that's what a lot of the sort of uh, that's and the jobs. You know, like the jobs guarantee like. People like jobs. Mm -hmm. So there's been a lot of that kind of thinking. I don't think like the left want community, the want community generally knows as much or has researched that as much to have really good firm answers about policy durability as I would like. Like it's very, there's a lot of hand waving in that area. I will say one final thing is one of, one of the big debates in the policy area right now is about tax, tax and dividend, which is this notion of sort of taxing carbon <clears throat> and then returning uh, the proceeds on a per capita basis to to citizens, like the Alaska Oil Fund, <clears throat> and part of I think there's a lot of policy reasons that I don't like that policy. But one of the big social reasons that is advanced in its defense is once you start cutting people checks they're going to want to keep getting them. So so it will not be popular if you can get that system in place and get it escalating, right? So people are getting bigger and bigger checks. Um, that's going to give it durability, right? So, but, but even that is like totally untested. Like all of this is sort of like so hand-wavy, but I, but, I, but I think it's good at least that like sort of the less policy people are at least like thinking, uh, thinking along these lines. 
Yeah, so, so thank you for that. You know, it's funny because in my economics class, I talk about you know, econo- efficiency and equity. Those are the kind of two dimensions. Now I think we need that third, at least for America. I mean, the sad thing is, and I think what we should get into the politics here, is that this notion that we need economic durability because without fail, we're going to have a, a, a concerted effort to undo any progressive policy. I think it's very important for us to put this in context that this is an American problem, right? Like the the, the right wing in Europe, the right wing in Canada, in Australia, in New Zealand are not so uniformly against climate progress as the right wing in America. This is a very... And, and also they're in parliamentary systems, so they have their natural number, which is pretty small, right? So they have like these right factional parties in Europe have to make deals they have to make deals with other people to take any power. Somehow, our small faction has leveraged control over one of our two parties. Like, that's, that is unique. It is. It is. And, and, and so I want to read. Uh, David had a, a piece on kind of conservatives and climate change. And, and the, the, the upshot here was basically that we can't look to the Republican Party or conservatives to have a good faith effort on climate change anytime soon. And I want to read this paragraph here that you wrote, and then we'll, we, can, we can speak on it. So you said, climate hawks will never find adequate solutions if they simply take the grim status quo as a given. They must change America's temperament. They must make it more liberal. Even if it eventually finds some assistance from within the GOP, the drive to address climate change is ultimately a liberal project. It's about drawing together in cosmopolitan global unity as a species, thinking in long-term, non-zero-sum terms, sacrificing for and helping one another, and having the confidence and curiosity to embrace change, to experiment and learn and adapt on the fly. Those are features of the climate project that draw on liberal personality traits. If climate hawks ever want to change the maddening gridlock political status quo in the U.S., they need to start thinking about how to bring those traits to the surface. So you have a, a pretty strong you know, plea here to really change the conversation, to change the, the kind of the center of American and really a strong kind of active, aggressive, liberal project. I agree with you wholeheartedly. That's one of the reasons I've invited you continually to come here, and I enjoy speaking with you. But how do we do that? How do we bring the, uh, the liberal project to the front and center? Um, and if not a, a full solution, how, give us some thoughts. Right. <laughs> I like that latter question better. <laughs> I always have thoughts. I never have solutions. Um, uh, just by way of background, sort of in that post, I can't believe I didn't get more in tr- more trouble for that post. I guess we probably, I guess nobody read it, but but the whole post was uh, pessimism about the prospects of conservatives in the U.S. offering any real help on climate change, and and I and I divided it into short-term pessimism, mid-term pessimism, and long-term pessimism. Uh, 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 the short-term pessimism is just what little movement or efforts there are on climate on the right and there are scattered groups here and there are just weak and they're underfunded and and there's no prospect of any more funding happening and they're flying in the face of partisanship and there's just not there there there's nothing there yet midterm skeptic the midterm pessimism was all about um the right has a machine to uh that can tarnish diminish and destroy Anything they point it at, <laughs> at will, and the left doesn't have a machine like that. 
So, so you know, you constantly see these sort of earnest technocratic lefties studying public opinion, finding stuff like, like, ooh, oh, innovation. Like, we still get some decent numbers from Republicans on innovation. Let's focus all our messaging there. I'm just like, you're just reacting to the landscape. But if they see you doing that, all they got to do is turn the howitzer on innovation and a couple of weeks of wall-to-wall coverage, and all of a sudden innovation equals socialism. Boom, they're done. Like, it's, they have, you have all these sort of technocratic lefties reacting to public opinion, and you have this giant machine on the right that was designed specifically to shape it, to create public opinion. (laughs) And so as long as that asymmetry persists, there's, it's, it's useless going and looking for little cracks or little niches because they can just stomp on them. And this is what happened to the Green New Deal. Like when the Green New Deal was released originally, the resolution, they, they polled it. This, this think tank, Data for Progress, polled it. And they found super high numbers across the board, D- Democrats, Republicans, old people, young people, regions everywhere. You ask them, like, do you like a program that creates a bunch of jobs and cleans up American power and like gives people good health care. Everybody says, yeah, those things sound great. <laughs> and then six weeks later, they did the same round of polling. And what did they find? Di- Republicans or the right has become united in opposition. They were all told exactly what conservatives are supposed to think about it. <laughs> they, they were instructed. They knew where to go to find out. What do people like us think about this? Here's what people like us think about this. It's, it's satanic socialism. And so now that's what they all think. Boom, job done. What happened on the left? You just like, oh, moderates are worried. It's too much this. And then the other activists are worried. It's too much that. And maybe it's too, you know, like, eh. and so like Democrats are divided and diffident, and there's no intensity of support behind it. And it's just sort of like, that's like the story of American politics all, all, all over again. Like, hardcore, intense, intense, focused, mobilized opposition versus diffuse and, and, and diffident support. That's like every, every progressive issue. Healthcare, run down the, run down the, uh, the list. And, and, and the left does not have a machine that is capable of generating intensity behind uh, before for or against anything in anything like the same way that Fox and right-wing media do. It's just it's a it's a basic asymmetry that is going to hobble any effort to reach out and and peel people off for the next uh, however long. I don't know how long this lasts, but the next however long it's uh, uh, unless um Unless, like, Fox and right-wing media decide that, like, clean power is good now, which they're a long way from doing. Like, the fossil fuel guys over there have a lot of money and a lot to lose, and they still run the show. And there's going to be a long time before they're grace- willing to gracefully exit. So that's the midterm pessimism. You were referring to the long-term pessimism, which is, <laughs> which is I'm, I'm referring to these sort of there's been a ton of really interesting work lately in political psychology and sociology, you know, because America has been sorting itself for years now, decades, not just by income and by race, but even they're finding by personality, like, like types of people 
are clustering. And what's happening is, um, you know, there's these called the big five personality traits. One of them is openness to experience, right? And this is what they find is when they study liberals and conservatives, that's the big one where they differ. That's the, mo- that's the, the, the single greatest indicator of whether you're uh, politically a conservative or a liberal. If you have low openness to experience, i.e. if you're more sensitive to fear and threat, you're more uh, concerned with order and, and tidiness and predictability, hierarchy, clarity, lack of ambiguity, or you are less sensitive to fearful stimuli and more open to experience, and then you'll be more curious more open to uh, uh, sort of dealing with people not like you, et cetera. What's happening is those two kinds of people are splitting and the low openness to experience people are staying in small towns and suburbs and the uh, high openness to experience people are going to cities, which is making cities extremely blue and the giant swaths of land out there extremely red and these sort of like self-reinforcing patterns. Like if you live around that, you become more like that in both directions. So the whole point being, all this talk you hear from, from climate people about how, well, we just need to find out what resonates with conservatives, with conservative values, and appeal to those values. We'll just pitch our climate message toward those values. Easy peasy. But my whole point is, climate is an actual thing. It's not Plato. You can't moosh it into just any narrative you want. Like it has certain features. And one, and one of the features it has is things aren't going to stay the same, <laughs> right? Like this mythic past, this pure, cleaner, you know, better, simpler past. You can't tell conservatives that, that, that climate policy is going to, get them back there. It's not, it's just not like if there's one thing we know about climate change is that what you know and what you grew up with is already going away every day. Watch the news. Like things are changing. So it's a race now. Either we sit back passively and watch negative changes chew us up or we proactively take charge and change ourselves quickly and try to preserve what we can in the face of this uh, in the face of this madness, either of those stories are stories of of headlong change into the unknown. <laughs> right? That's just the structure of humanity's situation in the 21st century. There's, I don't know how to make that appealing to someone who values order and who wants to return to the past and who values tidiness and predictability. I just don't think you can like it's it's you just you just can't. So so my point is people have tendencies one way or the other this way but we also know that circumstances bring some of these traits to the fore, right? If you feel scared and threatened, if a population feels scared and threatened, they will collectively become more conservative. IE they will draw in their circle of care they will, they will become more attached to the status quo, more fearful of change, more fearful of outsiders, less open to experience, etc. Conversely, if you make a community or a population feel safe and cared for and valued, then they will become more open 
to extending uh, benefits and the, the benefit of the doubt and cooperation to others. So we know that it's not just people are one way or the other. We know that how people behave and think varies with circumstance. All Fox News is and right-wing media is a giant machine built to scare old people. Why? Because that makes them more conservative. That's the whole point of the enterprise. That's why you turn on Fox News any hour of any day and they are trying to scare the crap out of you. That is that is like 98% of the tone on that on that channel. It's not an accident and it's not unconscious. They know what they're doing. They know the results of it. So this is an extremely long-winded way of answering your question, but my whole point was just the left has got to figure out not just how to react to public sentiment and public sort of character and public opinion. We've got to figure out a comparable way to shape it, to make people feel safe, to make people feel willing to launch into this grand project with an uncertain outcome. Like we've got to think in terms of how to change people and make them more liberal, <laughs> basically. Um, how to do that, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I don't think it's possible to build the equivalent on the left of the right-wing media machine just because materially the demographics are different, the coalition is different, the temperament and personality is different, but <clears throat> but just just in the same way that I think durability needs to be taken on as kind of a permanent consideration, that also needs to be taken on. How are we going to make people feel better and safer so that they're willing to take a leap with us, right? Like what's our, so what do we emphasize? What's our tone? What, you know, on and on. But that needs to be in the back of, uh, of everyone's mind because if we just react and they've got a machine that drags it right, that just dynamic goes on forever. I don't know what breaks that. No, no, I think that's a... Uh, a, a true observation. I think that's the challenge for all of us, right? Is like, again, we, we can't think of an equivalent to the right wing media. And to be honest, I don't think we would want to, to, you know, fight tit for tat on that. But, but I think you're right that, and I think in some sense, you know, Obamacare was trying to do that, trying to take the fear out of health, right? Like you're not going to go bankrupt. You're not going to, you know, even if you lose your job, there's a backstop, right? So all of these, even if they're incremental, kind of liberal, progressive, socioeconomic things will start over time. I think, I think the one thing that maybe we both share here is we have to think of this as a long-term project, right? This is, you know, the conservative movement, it spent 40 years, right, building up this fear. It's not going to be four years where we can bring a hopeful dimension, right? Obama's hope and change is a 40-year project. And I think maybe that's the orientation. It's hard, though. It's hard. We don't and, and, and trust too is the other thing. Right. I was just reading an article about this the other day. But, um, social trust is sort of like the coin of the realm. If you have that, you can have lots of other good things. And if you don't have that, you can't have any good things. And again, like uh, this has been a four-decade campaign to to corrode social trust and to corrode trust in institutions to corrode trust in media and academia and science and 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 popular entertainment and and every everybody else except for the people right. on your TV telling you your conservative things right and it's and it's worked so also i think the left needs to think about how to 
like it's it's sort of notorious in politics that procedure and procedural campaigns never fire anybody up like they don't they don't work very well in politics like like you can't get people to care about campaign campaign finance you know and, and these other sort of like structural procedural things but i really think the left has got to start thinking about how do you restore the integrity of these of these institutions and restore trust in them because i don't think without trusted institutions without a trusted um shared body of facts and values we retreat to tribalism and nationalism and conservatism like that's again they knew they destroyed that trust on purpose yep. and the question is how do you rebuild it on purpose yeah. no great point so so we're we're an international institution here and uh, an international program and, and one of the questions we've gotten from the audience is kind of about the Paris climate agreement you know just as a technical matter right so trump on his first i think week or day you know, put in the official withdrawal from the Paris Agreement. But what's in the agreement is it takes four years. So if he wins re-election, we will formally withdraw. But if a Democrat wins in 2020, we can we can go back in. And so what is your feeling on how the Paris Agreement is kind of proceeding without the U.S. full participation? And how do you see that playing into the, to the larger efforts? Sure. sure. I think, um, I think that early reaction was better than I anticipated or hoped in that. I think Trump being withdrawing and in such dickish fashion that it kind of united other countries be like, we're not going to let you destroy this thing. Right. And so there was, there was a kind of a surge of, of, of solidarity and action and sort of like, um, um, you know, how long that can sustain without American leadership is an open question. I sort of think that like it all depends on like the whole fate of the world depends on the 2020 election, including the Paris, <laughs> including the Paris climate agreement. Um, I, I, but, but um, the Paris climate agreement itself is, is, an interesting phenomenon in terms of trying to build international trust, right? Because sort of for years, the international approach was let's create a binding agreement with binding targets for emission reductions. And of course, the UNFCCC has to be unanimous. I don't know if people know this, but they can't do anything unless they get a unanimous vote on it out of like, what is it, 179 countries, including like Saudi Arabia <laughs> and you know, so so they were never able to do that. So instead, the Paris Agreement is a different thing. It's voluntary. It doesn't impose anything on signatories. What they do is they come with what are called nationally determined contributions, NDCs. They say, this is what we feel confident that we can do, right? And, and we're going to put it on record. And then every five years, they're going to do a stock take. And every country is going to have to report whether it was able to do what it said it could do. So there's no penalties. Nothing's binding. This is what Trump was so... I mean, literally everything a Republican has ever said about the Paris Agreement is so surreally, wildly false that it's just like, it's disorienting to watch. It does not impose anything on us. It's voluntary. It's like you can do as little as you want. Literally, that's the structure of the thing. But but the whole notion is the whole notion is a 
the reputational effects will will spur people to stay on course. Like no country wants to sort of publicly fail in its part of this collective thing after saying what it could do, then come back and say, ah, it turns out we couldn't do that. And, and of course, then like you get reputational benefits for being a leader, like very clear if you're a leader, if you're going beyond what you said you were doing. So, so the idea is in a sense, you're building trust. Like it's a giant trust building mechanism, a giant trust building machine. Like we see you're going, we're going, Oh, we're going together. Like, we're starting to like build up some trust that we're all going to keep going together. Like, and that will, and so in, in a sense, the search for a binding treaty kept everybody huddled in their corners because they didn't want to get sucked into something that committed them to something beyond what they felt like they could do. So everybody stayed huddled in their corners, but now like you're not risking anything by coming to the table. You're just coming with what you think you can do. So the idea is everybody will at least start right everybody will at least do something at least try and and it's way too early to say whether that's working or not like like it is notable that no one's on the trajectory to meet their paris targets like no one's no one is succeeding but it's also notable that every country is doing stuff right i mean it's also notable that everyone is involved and doing something and taking action and you just have to believe that like just as just as um um opposition is sort of self-reinforcing action is self-reinforcing and it will build over time but i think you need the u.s involved to 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 verify that that uh that sort of like measurement and verification are being done in fair and objective ways and just like you need a trusted, like the U.S. is still, believe it or not, trusted um, um, in these sort of capacities and sort of administrative capacities. So we need American leadership in the Paris Agreement. Um, but that said, the Paris Agreement is not policy for us. Like we could join it and it doesn't commit us to anything. So like Democrats right now, I don't know if you saw this today, today, today uh, passed a passed a bill through the house that would rejoin the U S the Paris agreement. And I was like, the cynical part of me is like, Oh, this is just the kind of thing they love doing. Like a, it's never going to get through the Senate. So there's no possible consequences. B, even if it did pass and we'd rejoin the Paris agreement, it doesn't impose anything on us. It doesn't like, it's like, it's a, it's a hand wavy, feel good consequence free way of saying you're doing something for climate, which is like exactly what Democrats want. But that said it had to be done and it's, and it's better that it got done. So we have a couple other questions here on some kind of back kind of technical aspects. I think these are both interesting. So the role, the potential future role for nuclear power in, in getting to to kind of the carbon net zero. And then also whether you think carbon capture technology is part of the part of the mix here. Oh, I cannot escape any public event without those two questions. <laughs> uh, uh, um, uh, on nuclear... And this is something that I will say about very few subjects. I feel like the public understanding and public dialogue about this has improved uh, in the last few years. Um, um, there are still kind of armed camps 
there's still um, a huge legacy of sort of blanket anti-nuclear sentiment in the U.S. left, in the U.S. environmental movement, going way back to the 60s and 70s. That still is certainly there. And there is a faction of nuclear is this one simple trick that'll solve climate change for you. And anytime you're talking about anything else, you're just being a dumbass and renewables will never work. And sort of like the nuclear obsessives, they're all over the Internet. I, I, I pray to you that you never meet them. I hope you never have to run into them. Uh, but that said, between those camps, I think there is a growing consensus around a couple of things. One is we need to keep existing nuclear plants open as long as possible. Um, because they are generating carbon-free energy, and we need lots and lots of carbon-free energy. Um, you know, obviously with the proviso that those are safe, the ones that are safe to, to continue running, should continue running, even if they're not making money. And like you'll hear a lot of, you'll hear a lot of sort of climate people go, oh, this, those plants can't make money, they're dinosaurs. And I was like, yeah, well, everything good in this space requires subsidies. Like if you're just like, if you, you know, you're just going to get the status quo cementing itself. If you don't like you're subsidizing solar out the wazoo, like we subsidize everything else. Why this subsidy is suddenly the, you know, the terrible one. So I think there's a consensus around that question. Like the, 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 the union of concerned scientists notoriously against new nuclear development came out recently and said, yes, we should keep existing nuclear plants open. So I think that's eh, kind of a consensus. And then the question is, what about new nuclear? Is there any role for new nuclear? And I think the consensus that's forming is we don't have to settle that right now. <laughs> like we, we don't have to settle that before we, before we get on with things. So for instance, in Washington, California too, but I'll, but I'll continue to brag on Washington um, uh, the, the goal by 2045 is 100% clean, renewable, or non-emitting sources of power. So all that does is just leave it open. Maybe it's renewables. Maybe it's nuclear. Maybe it's natural gas with carbon capture and sequestration. Anything that doesn't emit carbon is welcome to join in the race, join in the competition. Now, if you think as I do, that there are not going to be even remotely economic nuclear plants anytime soon, then what does it hurt you to let them compete, <laughs> right? What, is it, what does it hurt you to, to leave the door open for them? If you think they're going to die on their own, let them die. Like, you know, there's no need to settle it now, like I said. And, and maybe... Maybe all this hype about small modular reactors and pebble bed this and salt bed that or whatever, all the fancy new kinds of nuclear there that are allegedly right on the verge of being, of being uh, uh, commercialized. Maybe this time they really are on the verge of being uh, uh, um, uh, commercialized and maybe we really can have a small, totally safe, meltdown-proof nuclear reactor. And if we had one of those creating carbon-free power, you're like, huzzah, that's like, we need carbon is the, carbon is the, the enemy here. Like carbon is the enemy. So anything that reduces carbon has got to be allowed a seat at the table at least. So, so my sort of like where I come out is keep the old nuclear plants open, leave the door open to new ones. 
but I doubt any new ones will come through that open door. That's kind of where I've come come out. But if you do think they'll come through that door, that's fine. But like, but but I think basically like the armed camps have a, relaxed a little bit and are starting to sort of meet in that kind of fuzzy middle. So Washington left the door open because there are some states and cities that say 100% renewable, which is going to be really difficult to do anywhere. And and then, but, but like Washington, California, um, and the Green New Deal resolution all basically wave their hands and say clean, renewable, you know, non-emitting, whatever in that bucket, non-carbon energy is welcome to come and compete. So that's nuclear. And I would say the same thing about carbon capture, although carbon capture is a difficult, a, a different, um, um, uh, it has a different role here in that. And I don't know how well the public knows this or understands this, so I will try to explain it real quickly. It's, it's kind of a scandal and sort of the climate nerd modeling world. But so, you know, you have all these um, models that show us meeting these climate targets. Like here's a model that shows how we can restrict temperature rise to two degrees or less, right? And you've got all these inputs in the model and the model shows you your little, your little curve of emissions. It is not well known that the vast majority of models that show us meeting those targets do so by showing that we get to emit a little bit more in the short term and then somewhere around mid-century, we start negative emitting. <laughs> we start pulling carbon out of the atmosphere. And we pull a shitload out <laughs> to meet that target a lot. So almost every model that shows us succeeding in this thing has this sort of asterisk in it. P.S. here, create a giant new global industry with three times the amount of infrastructure as the existing oil industry to bury gigatons of carbon, which by the way, has no economic benefit of any kind to anyone doing it. So it will have to be brute force funded by public money. Yeah. Like, like that's just an asterisk in all these models. So all these, all, anytime you hear like, people at the UN saying, we know how to do this. We can do this. We've, we've, you know, we've got the proven, we've got a proven ways to do this. Yeah, kinda, but, but it, but it means we're going to bury more, uh, 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 gigatons of carbon, uh, uh, by mid-century than anyway. So that's carbon capture. So, so you got two ways to go there. One, you can take that asterisk out. You can say that's not an option in which case the models show you doing this, right? Emissions going off a cliff if we want to meet our targets, right? If you're going to do it without negative emissions, the models show you basically like short-term, hopefully imposed austerity, basically. Like at that point, you don't get your, you don't get your growth cake and to eat your emission reductions too. That was a, sorry, a terrible <laughs> metaphor, but my, but, 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 but that shows panic time, right? Which is why they have this asterisk in there because they don't want panic time. They don't want to panic the world. So they put this negative emissions in there. But like the problem is footnote, we don't have that yet. <laughs> we don't even know. We don't like, we know 
how to capture carbon extremely expensively, and we know how to bury it extremely expensively, but we don't have any clue how to stand up a giant global industry doing this. And certainly we don't know how to do it in any sort of economic fashion. Like it's never going to be, I really don't think carbon, like fossil fuels or or even like biomass with carbon capture and sequestration is ever going to economically compete with solar or wind or, or, or clean power. So, so basically we're just carbon capture is like, is our sort of collective way of putting off the really difficult decisions until, until mid century. But if we want a mid-century industry that's burying gigatons of carbon, we really got to start right now building the crap out of it. And we're not, we're not. We don't even really know how to do it. So, so I'm sort of ambivalent. Like, yes, we need to figure that out. Yes, we need, I mean, we're almost inevitably going to have to do some of that. But on the other hand, like, I don't want it to be an escape hatch, you know, which I think is what a lot of people maybe subconsciously want to use it as, as a way to take the pressure off. Like we don't have to admit, we don't have to reduce so much so fast now because we've got this magic solution in 20 years or 30 years. And like, I just don't think that solution is going to pan out anything like on that scale. So, so yes, research, but I wouldn't put my chips on it, all my betting chips on it. All right. Well, let's, let's kind of, bring this full circle by by asking you if you had the ear of the eventual you know that the chief strategist for the eventual democratic nominee here what what do you want to hear coming out of the democratic camp because again with the unfortunate fact that that's the only place where climate policy is going to be happening that you think would be the affirmative messaging for the Green New Deal that you think, even though it might not be impervious to attacks on the right, they're going to tr- put the howitzer on it, that you think is going to have the, the greatest salience and be the most truthful and the most also well-positioned for this long-term reorientation and, and kind of paradigm that you think we, we need. So you, you have the ear of the chief strategist right. of the 2020 nominee. Well, well, just a nitpick before I, I give my real answer, which is, and, and it's always the same nitpick, which is, what makes messages work is not cleverness, <laughs> right? This is the mistake Democrats make over and over again is this endless search for just the right magic combination of words that's going to sort of open people's eyes. Call it climate crisis. How many times have I heard that? <laughs> um, what makes messages work is brute force repetition, right? And what it takes to... To, to jam it in voters' ears over and over and over again is not cleverness. It's power and money, right? And that's what the Fox machine is. They have a captive audience. They've captured an audience. So, like, they don't have to be particularly clever. They can say Green New Deal is stupid face, and they, they, just, say it enough, <laughs> they just say it enough times, right? That sinks in. So, so point being, like, the messaging battle is not going to be won by, by, by having clever advisors like me sort of coming up with clever messages as, as much as I might like that. But I actually think if you want to see on the substance and messaging of climate change, who's doing it right, look at Jay Inslee. Like, he's, he's probably not going to be the next president. <laughs> I, think, I think it's pretty clear at this point. It was always pretty clear to anyone who knows him or has followed his career, and it's probably for the best, honestly. Um, but, but, but on the subject of climate change, He's been sincerely at it for a long time and in the weeds of it for a long time. So A, he's got the great 
top line message, which is this is our next big challenge. Like we're going to, we're going to create jobs for this. We're going to innovate like all this sort of forward looking, like can do compete win the 21st century. I hate that rhetoric, but I've, but I've made peace with it. We're going to, we're going to win. China's trying to win. We're going to win. What is, what, win, what? But, but, but that's a big part of the rhetoric because it's very appealing to people. So he's got great top line messaging and, um, you know, like, uh, uh, just to sort of like, uh, uh, give you guys a little news blurb here tomorrow. You guys are the first to know tomorrow. Jay Inslee is going to release the first piece of his climate policy package, which is going to roll out in several pieces. And it's, and it's, uh, about the first piece is about electricity, um, buildings and or electricity, new buildings and new cars. There will be subsequent pieces about existing buildings and existing cars, but it is fantastic. It's just fantastic, thoughtful, substantive policy that makes everything every other presidential candidate has put out about this look so dumb. Like, like, like Beto's plan, like God bless him. Like he care, he, like he put it first. He, he, climate was the first thing he did any policy on just a couple of days ago, Beto. And, and, and so like, God bless him for like, acknowledging the urgency and, and and prioritizing it. But it's clearly the kind of plan that comes out of like Beto and some people he brought in sort of like BSing and then throwing stuff at him and him going, yeah, I like the sound of that or no, you know, just like it's clear that it's not his native language. Let's put it that way. And, 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 and Inslee's plan that's coming out tomorrow is like, this is a guy and a, and a staff who have been swimming in this and know what's what and how to get things done. And it's just, to me, I don't know how much of a splash it's going to make because it's just Jay Inslee and he can't seem to get anybody to pay attention to him. But, but I would love it if it shaped the policy discussion because the policy discussion has been so mired in climate and just symbolism and sort of like who cares more and who's willing to use the most grandiose rhetoric to describe the danger and who's willing to sort of endorse the most ludicrous target, you know, just all these sort of abstractions. And I would love it if they could, if Inslee could steer that discussion toward actual policy so we can talk about some actual policy stuff. Yeah. Well, I think, I think that's a great way to kind of wrap this up because the way I'm going to paraphrase that, which will be good for the students and the community here, is let's have the hopeful vision. Let's have the kind of the economics, the security that's non-zero sum, and then actually behind it have some good substance, some really deep thinking, and the policy to kind of follow it up. So it's we have the rhetoric plus the substance, and and then we think the long-term vision, and maybe uh, maybe we'll prevail here. And and Inslee is one of only a few presidential candidates who has said flat out, none of this will happen if the filibuster is in place. We've got to kill the filibuster first thing when I come in office. Here, here, I love that. All right, well, look, everybody, let's give Dave a big round. All right, everybody, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with David. My antidotes for today are quite simple, which is as you are shopping around for Democratic candidates for 2020, check out their climate policy pledges and information on their website and their platform, because we really want candidates who are going to be strong on the Green New Deal and aggressive on climate policy 
because we don't have much more time to really get our house in order. We know the Republicans are going to block everything, so we need the Democrats in charge and who are committed to the Green New Deal. So with that, everybody, if you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, or Stitcher. Uh, Rate it, share it with your family, friends, and colleagues. And with that, have a great rest of the week. Take care. Thank you.